Hello and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. We are recording this on Friday, September 22nd, 2023. In this week's episode, shocking new details emerge of the alleged abuse suffered at the hands of momfluencer Ruby Frankie as search warrants further detail her children's living conditions. Also, Corey Richens, the author of a children's book on grief, who's been charged with the drugging death of her husband, is now facing allegations of witness tampering, and you will never guess what her defense has to say in response. But first... The defense abruptly rests their case after presenting zero witnesses in the murder trial of an obsessive ex accused of killing his former girlfriend, a famous Hollywood sex therapist. Today, we are joined by Dr. Tracy Pearson, a legal, political, and cultural analyst you can catch across all media platforms. Tracy, welcome back. Thanks, Josh. It's great to be here with you. I love talking with you about these cases. Oh, good. We love uh, we love chatting with you as well because we know you follow them so closely, and I know you you are incredibly well researched. <laughs> uh, I always I always really do appreciate your commentary because you you've gone beyond just what the media is is saying about it, and you've really looked in depth. And so I really do appreciate the work that you put into it. Uh, before we begin, though, um, for listeners who aren't familiar, the first time you were on this show, tell us a little bit about your current work. What are you up to? Absolutely. I am on Sirius XM Radio, Sirius XM Progress, Channel 127. Uh, every Wednesday, I'm there with John saying on Tell Me Everything, where I explain everything. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm also presently working on a book um, on uh, implicit bias in workplace investigations. Oh, wow. Very cool. I, I imagine that's going to take a lot of work as well. It has taken a lot of work. Yes, it is. Uh, it's based off of a study that I did uh, about how uh, investigators approach uh, these cases. And uh, I interviewed and surveyed about 190 across the country. Oh, wow. Well, when that comes out, please let us know and we will have to have you back to chat a little bit about it. Absolutely. Um, in the meantime, let's dive right in. First, we go to Los Angeles, California, where the trial for the murder of a Hollywood sex therapist, Amy Harwick, took a surprise turn on Thursday, September 21st. That was just yesterday from when we're recording this, when the defense team opted to abruptly rest their case. Gareth Pursehouse, a former boyfriend of Harwick, stands accused of the doctor's murder. Pros prosecutors allege that Pursehouse broke into Dr. Harwick's Hollywood Hills home before strangling her and throwing her from a third floor balcony. Much of the prosecution's circumstantial case has been built around the fear that Harwick suffered as a result of Pursehouse's alleged obsessive fascination with her. Meanwhile, Pursehouse's defense has maintained that the man was deeply depressed after running into Harwick, coincidentally, at an event shortly before her death. His attorneys claimed that Pursehouse had only broken into the doctor's house to speak with Harwick. Okay. Shortly before resting their case, prosecutors presented testimony from a friend of Harwick's who alleged that Pursehouse had broken into the doctor's house on a previous occasion. 
After the prosecution concluded their case in a move that many courtroom observers found surprising, Purse House's defense also rested, opting to not present any witnesses on the defendant's behalf, despite subpoenaing Harwick's former fiance and Price's right host, Drew Carey. Closing arguments in the case are scheduled for September 26th. Tracy, I know uh, that many times the defense will rest without presenting witnesses. This is not entirely uncommon. Um, Perhaps they feel they simply don't have anyone worth calling or because they feel that they've already done enough of their case through cross-examination. We always remember that the burden rests with the prosecution. But I was surprised in this case to have no witnesses, not even a couple of character witnesses to talk about his state of mind. What was your reaction to how this ended? My reaction to this, and I don't have any evidence of it, but what I'll tell you is that in my experience, uh, having done defense work, that you do not call witnesses when your client has admitted to you that they did it. (laughs) Um, You cannot suborn perjury. So putting a witness up on the stand uh, would still be uh, suborning perjury because you'd be creating a false impression in the jury's mind. Um, now, it is possible they just didn't have anybody who who is relevant or worth talking to, but it seems a bit odd in light of who they subpoenaed. And um, I think that, that it's possible here, given uh, what we know about his background and his experiences with this woman. Yeah, I, I see where you're going with that. And I, you know, They did an interesting thing in this case because they didn't say he was nowhere near there. They said he broke in, right? So they they conceded to some extent that they broke in, but they're they're disputing how it was that she fell. And there's evidence that she died both from the fall and from perhaps strangulation beforehand. This is the medical examiner testified to that. And so they're saying, listen, he showed up. It was all very dramatic. He's a very heartbroken man, and he was there, and mea culpa as far as it goes to that, but he didn't He didn't actually kill her. It was an accident. She fell to her death, or she took her own life. I'm not quite sure what exactly they were trying to push with all of that, but you would have thought someone to say this man was suicidal, or he had no intention of hurting her. He just loved her. I don't know. The other thing I was thinking is we get asked this question. I get asked this question on every single case, and I'm sure you do too. What is the defendant going to take the stand? Because everybody wants to know when is the defendant going to take the stand? I thought this case was actually a candidate for it because he's the only one that knows what took place in that bedroom. You don't seem to think so. Why, why do you think that it was a smart move for him not to? Well, I have done a lot of stalking cases where I've represented, I've represented both sides. Obviously, I've represented victims um, and as well as uh, defendants in, in different, different cases. Um, it is a, when you put a defendant on the stand, it is, a, uh, it is all about credibility and, uh, and having to establish and maintain that credibility, even though the defense doesn't have to prove anything and doesn't carry the burden of proof once you put yourself into play once you put that defendant into play now you you have a risk of losing what is essentially a given um in that that he is presumed innocent until proven guilty and uh he comes in with that presumption once you put him on the stand 
it dissipates from there. Unless you have a case where somebody is is persuasive, where there are facts to support it, where there is a need to explain something. Um, and uh, I mean, we recently saw it in, in uh, the federal removal case regarding Mark Meadows. He took the stand uh, because he was trying to get his case removed. That's a situation where you might see that um, because they have to explain something about their background. It's necessary. But here, it is all bad news if he takes the stand. You have somebody who has prior restraining orders. You have somebody who, um, you know, where there are prior police reports. Uh, you have prior witnesses who have testified about things that he's going to be asked about. Um, and if he is, in fact, the person that the prosecution says he is, all he's going to do on the stand is unravel, in my experience, because you have somebody who it is is an obsession um, that that this person, not this person, but somebody in this situation has with with a, a former romantic partner. And and so now, you know, it push comes to shove. They're facing the consequences of having to testify. And it is you have no idea what this person is going to do. Are they going to collapse? Are they going to start admitting things? Are they going to be able to remain composed? Are they going to be able to answer questions without responding in a um, aggressive manner? It is not worth the risk. Yeah, I don't think people appreciate how difficult it is exactly to testify and to testify under rigorous cross-examination as well. It's not just you getting up there and telling your story. It's the prosecution getting up and being able to chop about everything you've ever said. Even people with nothing to hide and people who have a very legitimate story to tell, like you said, now they've almost put themselves at issue. Now, now, even though the burden still rests with the prosecution, it's almost like they have to prove their own innocence at that point. And even the smallest thing that if it appears as though they're equivocating on something or not being entirely honest on something or shading the facts in their favor, the jury just might hang their hat on that alone to be like, I don't, I don't believe this person. I think they're a liar, which is so funny to me because people's natural inclination when when they feel like if they were in that position is i would of course take the stand you, you i see this all the time in voir dire it's the hardest thing to get over is people think if i'm accused of a crime and i didn't do it of course i would take the stand how about you absolutely it is it, it for for armchair lawyers and i say that in the kindest way um it, it, the the idea that that you would you would take the stand and you would put yourself at issue because it feels natural to defend yourself when, you know, if you and I are in an argument somewhere and, and, and I'm defending myself and you're defending yourself, that's one thing. But when you have 12 eyes staring at you or 14 or 16 or however many of those alternate jurors are staring at you and you have a judge and you have a room full of people and cameras potentially, um, it changes it changes the dynamic to an extent that um that it is really hard. It is so incredibly hard. I mean, this is the moment. So, you know, in, in my experience with folks, this is the this is it. This is your moment. And and the vast majority of people can't overcome that pressure. I mean, think about, you know, we're talking about this case in, in Los Angeles. Think about O.J. Simpson, right? O.J. Simpson, he was an actor. He was he was capable of, of being gregarious. He was used to being around people that challenged him and 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 had sort of that experience. 
and and he was he was you know yucking it up during that case um when he was testifying and doing the gloves and the things you know and and put the gloves on um that isn't the average human being and and it is incredibly incredibly stressful and it's even worse frankly for me as the lawyer who's sitting next to that person because i'm just praying and biting my fingernails that they're not going to do something to screw up that i'm going to have to clean up no I, I, the one that comes to my mind is uh, most recently is Alex Murdoch. I mean, the man was a lawyer. He did this for a living. He was a prosecutor. He understands how the whole game is played. And he got a lot of mixed reviews on how he did. But a lot of people believe that that case came down to his testimony. And they obviously found him guilty in a very short amount of time. So there you go. If you think that you're you're going to do better than a than a guy that has spent his entire career practicing this art, uh, and even still he he came up short, um, then then think again. <laughs> Lawyers make the worst witnesses and the worst the worst uh, sort of clients, if you will. They are the worst because they they think they understand and they think that they know, and their ego takes over. Yeah. Um, it's 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 horrible, but yeah, no. In this situation, I absolutely think that um, I, I I I think it's shocking that you wouldn't just put somebody up, somebody who loves you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One you know? one person to at least show you made the effort. Well, right. the other most common question I get asked in each one of these cases is, "How do you think it's going to turn out?" So I'm going to put you on the spot. How do you think did did the prosecution do enough in this case? It was a circumstantial case. The circumstantial cases, I, I, as you know, they're winnable. Um, they're yeah. very winnable. Very, very irregularly do we have uh, direct evidence of something. And so we're always drawing inferences from evidence that's submitted. I think in this case, this this is, as you know, I hate predicting, but I'm going to do it with you, um, is is I think they've got enough evidence. Um, yeah. You know, they have a syringe that, that matched the syringe that was found at, at the, the location of the attack. Um, that, uh, you know, they have the prior behavior conduct. Um, they have witnesses that, that talked about her fear. They have the broken necklace. They have the DNA evidence. Uh, there's DNA evidence that was found under her fingernails. Um, and that I believe it was one in septillion, one in, 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 in septillion, like, or one in one septillion, uh, that, that it was going to be this defendant. That's a, that's, that's a pretty, pretty convincing statistic yeah and and not to mention just from the emotional standpoint this is just such a terrifying story i mean the idea that they dated close to 10 years prior to this and for less than a year this was not some decades-long relationship but that short period of time this person became obsessed over her and the fact that he broke into her home waited for her perhaps broke into her home at a prior occasion that emotional factor alone i think is going to play some role in the jurors heads i think i agree with you i don't i i think the prosecution did enough in this case they, um and, yeah no, i was just going to say that, that these cases don't get enough play they don't get enough airplay the the stalking and obsession and these types of behaviors are things that happen to people, both men and women, um, and non-binary people every day. And yeah. this is the the lawyer's worst nightmare: is that this happens to yeah. your client. Yeah. No, it's 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 really really disturbing, scary stuff. So I hope that she gets 
she gets a little justice. And we'll find out soon enough. They're going to be, by the time we're releasing this podcast, they will be making their closing arguments, and I imagine they'll have a verdict next week. Hi, this is Amy Poehler, here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, we turn to Ivan's Utah, where shocking new allegations in the case of a YouTube momfluencer charged with felony child abuse highlight how victims of the mother may have been bound and tied. Parenting podcaster Ruby Frankie and her business partner Jody Hildebrand were arrested earlier this month after Frankie's 12-year-old son allegedly begged a neighbor for food and water. According to reports, the boy was severely emaciated and had lacerations from being bound, but was able to escape from a window in Hildebrandt's home. Just remarkable stuff. While receiving medical treatment, the victim allegedly told reporters the wounds were from rope that, quote, Jody used to tie the victim to the ground. Disturbing new reports reveal the child also explained that the wounds had been treated with cayenne pepper and honey, which was reportedly corroborated in a search of the home where the ingredients were found next to medical gauze dressings. Frankie and Hildebrandt have been charged with six counts of felony child abuse. The next court hearing for Frankie and Hildebrandt is being delayed until October 5th due to copious amounts of information that need to be uh, processed by the defense. Um, Tracy, I'm not I'm not going to actually ask you to to mount a defense here, uh, but from a lawyer's perspective, what do they have? What, what, what could they possibly start to argue in this case, especially when some of these details start to become revealed? Um, I, I did this work for a number of years. I, I spent a good chunk of my career in child protective work. I was a certified child welfare law specialist for, for about 10 years. Um, it, when these cases become criminal and they're not civil, it, it becomes much, much harder. Um, and because there are, there are very, 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 very serious consequences. Um, and so the approach in something like this is, I think, uh, to try to find mitigating factors that will, frankly, you negotiate a plea and you mitigate because they are so extreme. Um, in, in a case like this, you are going to put kids up to testify. Um, you're going to have to put the victims um, to testify. Um, you There's going to be a lot of evidence. It is you have, uh, you know, a parent who is sitting at a table and jurors are watching them because jurors have nothing else better to do because they're sitting there and they're listening. And, you know, they're going to see tears if anybody has a, an ounce of remorse about what happened or they've, they've come to see the error of their ways. And I have represented defendant parents um, and in civil cases. So in the child protective case, they do come to see the error of their ways. Um, in this situation, it is so egregious because we have a, a somebody who's basically making a career 
off of, you know, vlogging about, about her family. Um, and they're doing this stuff to, to their kids, allegedly. Um, it is just, uh, it, it, it's, it's a horrific type of case because, you know, the two cases that I hated doing, and I wouldn't do animal cases at all, um, because completely helpless, right? And you also have parents' cases where you have these children who have been abused or neglected. Um, I did those because those were a way for me to, I think, educate um, and to act as an advocate for somebody um, and help them through a process. But it, it, these are the worst cases. And a jury just pulls at their heartstrings. Yeah. So this is a case ripe for a plea. You, you might be absolutely right, and I hadn't really thought all that much about it, but you, you might be right. It, depending on what their exposure is, I don't know what that is, but if they're ever able to get something that they feel like they could um, they could either serve that time or move on with their lives, you might be right, because who wants to go through a trial where your children, and not just the children that they're accused of abusing, but I imagine the other children are going to testify, and perhaps other family members. It sounds like there are people coming out of the woodwork who have something to say about this parenting style, quote unquote, that was being used here. Um, the, that's an awful thing to go through as a defendant, even if you're trying to defend yourself. The only benefit to going to trial would be to be exonerated. And it is this 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 amount. OK, I mean, like it, it is that small of being exonerated because of the emotional factor. But the outcome, there's a secondary outcome that folks don't think about in these cases, which is that your rights will be terminated to your children. No. Um, they will pursue, the state will pursue a termination of parental rights if you are convicted. They will pursue a termination of, of parental rights if you engage in a plea under these circumstances because the termination of parental rights statutes, because they're federally driven because of funding sources, um, will include that if you're convicted of, of a child abuse, a, a, you know, a criminal form of child abuse often. Um, yeah. as well as other other uh, similar related offenses. So uh, it is something that, that the only goal here is somebody who is that narcissistic would have to want to just believe they could completely prevail. They could talk their way out of it. But either, either you know, if you were convicted or if you were entering a plea, I foresee termination of parental rights. I suppose one could try to negotiate um, a plea that didn't include that, but I would be hard pressed to see a child protective agency to would agree to that, and they would certainly be involved in this. Yeah, yeah, that's a really important consequence that maybe a lot of people are not talking about. Um, you mentioned uh, narcissism, and I my last question on this is, I believe that is at play here. I'm no psychologist, but you have a person who spent their entire lives talking about their wonderful parenting and educating others on how they should be a parent and there's this case is unique in that there is hours and hours of footage of this person because that was how she made her career i don't i don't know if that was her sole means of income but that was a large part of how she made her career was through video blogging and youtube and everything else podcasting about parenting <clears throat> how one, I guess my question is, do you think the prosecution will get some of that in as evidence and how do you think they will use it? Uh, they will absolutely get that in as evidence. Uh, they will um, use it as 
I think evidence to show um, that, uh, that this person is a liar. They will they will compare and contrast it with other evidence that they have. Um, there's there's a kind of evidence that will probably be admitted, which is a child advocacy interview. Um, when uh, a child is involved in a case like this um, as a victim, we want to avoid interviewing kids repeatedly. And so we came up with a system and it's u- practically universal uh, all over the country where the child goes and meets with a forensic interviewer. Um, and uh, there's a team of people, um, uh, police, prosecutors, you probably participated in some of these possibly, um, a psychologist, uh, somebody who might be considered to be a guardian ad litem, somebody who's there to advocate, like a CASA uh, representative um, who might be uh, advocating for the child's best interest. Um, and they're sitting in another room and they're watching and they're listening to what's being said by the forensic interviewer and the child. And they can feed to the forensic interviewer information or ask them to ask certain questions. Um, and it is designed to obtain evidence once from that child and have it recorded so that the child uh, does not have to have multiple interviews um, and doesn't have to go through the trauma of repeating things. And it's done in a very child um, uh, safe way um, and and very conscious of the emotional toll that something like this takes on a child. Um, so yeah. I anticipate that's going to come into play and they're going to contrast what these this kid says to what she's saying on YouTube and in our podcasts. Yeah, but you do a good job of really highlighting that we're dealing with the most vulnerable members of our society when you're dealing with these types of cases and just the extra effort that has to go into making sure that getting just shepherding them through this process doesn't further add to the trauma that they've already experienced. It's really, really tough stuff and um, very sad. And I hope that however this concludes, I imagine that the protection and safety of those children are going to be paramount to everyone involved. But we will continue to keep an eye on this case, obviously. Finally, we stay in Utah, but move over to Salt Lake City, where in a bombshell development for the case against a grief book author accused of murdering her husband, Corey Richens is now facing allegations of witness tampering leveled by prosecutors. Court filings claim that Richens instructed her brother to deceptively testify that Richens' late husband had purchased fentanyl and other pain medications from Mexico prior to his death. Richen's husband, Eric, was found dead in the family's home in March of 2022 after suffering a fentanyl overdose that was allegedly five times over the lethal dose. The evidence of tampering was reportedly discovered in a six-page handwritten note found in Richen's cell. Richens, who published a children's book about grief after her husband's death, alleges that the notes found in her cell, get this, were the beginnings of a novel she was working on, loosely based on her life. No official plea has been uh, yet been entered by Richens for the murder uh, or drug charges she faces in her husband's death. Tracy, I've read the letter. I know you've read the letter. Um, her instructions to her brother are not what I would call vague. She's not speaking in code. She's not making suggestions. She's trying to orchestrate testimony. Um, and there is also evidence that she may have done this before um, because part of the reason that they tossed her cell was apparently she had been observed 
holding up a letter to the the partition between her and her mother during a visit. And when they tossed her cell, they didn't find anything. So they believed that this letter may have been intended to be used in a similar way. And they thought that she might uh, destroy it. And as I was researching, getting ready for this case, one of the things that was always so bizarre to me is that the beginning of the letter has in huge words, walk the dog. And I thought, what the, I, I didn't understand that. Why is she starting out with that? And I wonder, my, this is just me coming up with this. It was in such large lettering. I wonder if she knew she was being watched and she wanted the guards to see that thinking that all she's trying to do is pass along kind of just routine uh, reminders and errands for her mother to run. What, what are your thoughts on this letter? What are your thoughts on how uh, devastating or powerful this could be for the prosecution? We're both in Los Angeles and and we live in the town of, of where, you know, movies and TV shows are made. And it's this is the type of crap that you see on 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 TV where you just can't yeah. believe it. It's so ridiculous. You're in, you're incarcerated. You are being held and you have no privacy. You've been given your Miranda rights and you have no privacy and you're sitting there and you're writing this stuff down. I mean, how 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 I hate to say how stupid are you? You know, yeah. I mean, it is un unreal. And I think that that your conjecture is, is a good one. I think that that it's possible that she thought that there were cameras on her. And so she was trying to make sure that that they would it, ridiculously that they would say, oh, it says walk the OK, we won't look anymore. We're not going to look anymore because it says walk the dog. Um, I, I think that um, one of the things that I thought was interesting about the Utah law, um, the, the tampering with a witness, is that it's to induce a bribe. Uh, or to or to induce or or uh, take part in, um, so you can actually be charged if you're also the witness um, with a bribe, and um, and so you know I I think that it is is it, it's an interesting charge to bring given the statute out in Utah, um, you know it's different in other areas of the country where all you have to do is ask all I have to do is ask you, um, I think that. Um, this woman is in deep trouble. And I think that her 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 argument, her lawyer's argument is the best tap dancing that I've seen. And, and it's not very good um, because it makes no sense. I mean, it doesn't pass what we would call the sniff test. Um, you know, I'm just writing a book loosely on my life. You know, yeah. it's as bad as, you know, um, how I how I did it if I had done it, you know, I mean, right. it just doesn't doesn't work. And and this is this is somebody who also probably should be working with her lawyers to negotiate a plea. Yeah, I I was really shocked by that, you know, because this came out a few days ago and then you know, they had some time to respond and figure out how they're gonna handle this. And to respond with I'm writing a book just seemed so weak to me. And I mean, I thought, and I, again, I'm not saying this is a winning argument, but to me, at least is it's an argument that you can stand behind with a straight face is to say, oh, listen, she might have been a little, um, you know, vociferous in her in her her language. But really what she's doing is just trying to highlight what she wants to make sure he testifies to those things being true or she believes them to be true. Again, I know listeners are going to hear this and say, are you kidding me? Because it, it 
certainly sounds like to me that she's manufacturing what she wants him to say. But at least that's an argument you can stand there with a straight face. But I was writing a book just seems laughable to me, no? Exactly. And I think that that this highlights sort of we're removed from it. We're able to sit back and say, okay, if we were the defense lawyers, this is probably the strategy we would take. I think that when the person is our client, we we really don't want to concede anything. Um, we don't want to open the door to to the idea that 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 it can be really twisted on us. And so you you come up with these things like she's just writing a book. Whereas you, if you say she was taking, she was writing down some notes because she wanted to make sure that her brother, you know, understood where, what her perspective was. Um, he's free to testify however he wants, you know, and make that really clear in the record. But I think that, that when you're under the pressure of representing a client, the, the willingness to, to sort of go out onto that ledge, um, isn't there and you start yeah. you make some 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 arguments that you're hoping that'll play off like okay she's a writer she's a writer we'll just keep selling she's a writer and and hopefully that'll be a good argument that we can make and and it'll provide enough reasonable doubt like was she a writer well she was a writer it could have been yeah okay that's reasonable doubt that it would work and and i don't think it's a good strategy i think i agree with you yeah, and, and you make a good point, too, because there's a lot more at play sometimes. We know this when you're dealing with a client than, than the outside world may appreciate. And a large part of that can be your client itself, themselves. That they, they may be telling you, I want you to make this argument. And a lawyer has a lot of um, discretion in some of the str strategy decisions that are made and some of the arguments that are made. But this is also the person paying their bills. And this is also the person who's telling you, you know, you're under my employ and this is the argument I want you to make. And sometimes that's what you see in court is that they're, they may be making those arguments to a party of one. And that's the person sitting next to them that wants them to be making those arguments. So again, we don't know. I, I have no idea where, where any of that's coming from or what the motivations were behind it. It's just I thought my immediate reaction was you got to be kidding me that did not that did not help uh try to mitigate any of the damage done here but let's talk about finally that damage that was done in my view it's colossal because and I don't want to cut off your thunder here but I'll just share you briefly what I'm thinking is that before now we really didn't have an insight into her head we didn't really hear a whole lot of her thinking about this whole thing. Now, the first sort of words from her own mouth, if you want to call them that, she looks like a very controlling, manipulative person. And she looks like a person who would orchestrate not only her own defense, even if that involves getting people to lie, but she might be the type of person who would kill her husband. I mean, it just, it, it comes across as a person who likes to pull the strings. What do you think? I think the worst kind of evidence, and obviously you're free to disagree, but the worst kind of evidence is not the video. It's not the audio. It's a handwritten document where somebody had uh, the, the intent and the thought process and carefully chose the words and you see it in their own handwriting. That is the worst kind of evidence in my mind because it shows a, a, a plan to do something. 
Um, when you have somebody on audio, we often hear these interrogation videos or see these interrogation videos and, and hear the telephone call messages and things like that. Um, those are people talking off the cuff. Um, and they're sitting in a, sometimes in a stressful situation. Sometimes, you know, it's a voicemail. Um, this is somebody who sat down in a place where she's incarcerated and she knows what she's facing. She knows she has a right to remain silent and she wrote it down. She's done. Yeah. 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 Not much, not much wiggle room when it's in your own hand and on a piece of paper that can be provided to the jury. You're right. Well, uh, another case we're going to keep a close watch on, and it continues to get more fascinating with each day. But unfortunately, that's our show for today. Thank you, uh, Tracy. Thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? Absolutely. Uh, you can find me everywhere. I'm on every social media platform at Tracy Explains. I have a website, Tracy Explains. I have a Substack, Dr. Tracy Explains. And uh, again, I'm on Sirius XM Radio, Sirius XM Progress Channel 127, every Wednesday with John Fugelsang. Fantastic. We will check out check out everywhere you're at. Uh, and I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. And you can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.